Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. <laughs> Thank so. you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Ryers. Happy New Year. Is there an expiry date on that greeting? I don't think so. Especially as this episode launches Season 5 of The Stages Podcast. Season 5. A new year, a new podcast of characters, more great anecdotes and histories from performers and creatives from the business we call show. It's good to be back. Those of you in Sydney would be very aware that this week is the culmination of the 2022 Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras, a celebration of queer culture, drawing guests from around the nation and indeed the world. To mark the Festival of Fabulousness, Season 5 of Stages will commence by featuring conversations with personalities who have long been associated with Gay Sydney and incredible performance all dropping over the next three days. In this episode, we celebrate the drag legend that is Monique Kelly. I first encountered Monique in 1985 as a wide-eyed youth visiting Sydney. A group of us had travelled north from Victoria to see the musical Cats, which in its premiere season announced that it would only play in the Sydney theatre and not be able to travel any further. Remember those days? A clever marketing ploy that saw hundreds of thousands of visitors to Sydney, but I digress. Post-Cats, we visited King's Cross, as you do, and the famous and iconic Les Girls Review. Like Mardi Gras and Cats, it pulled guests from around Australia and indeed the world. All fascinated and enamoured at the beautiful boys being beautiful girls. It was spectacular. The most dazzling costumes, choreography and illusion. All seemingly played out on a stage no bigger than a postage stamp. Among the legendary performers at the review was Monique Kelly. A gifted comedian whose signature act was a version of the 12 Days of Christmas. It had to be seen to be believed. She complemented her comic brilliance with extreme glamour and poise, a true star of the review. Over the years, I've seen Mon perform many times. She is always hypnotic, always accomplished and always memorable. I'm thrilled that Monique Kelly is my very first guest in Season 5 of Stages. I can't wait for you to meet her. Stop it.
action and don't be bored. Look at this assortment, live smorgasbord. If you don't see what you want here, lay down brother, you're the dead. Minnie Kelly, um, drag doyen, drag legend, drag icon. Oh dear, that many titles. <laughs> Uh, drag royalty is another one. How about that? There you are. You, will you go with all of those? Well, yes, all right, I will. You are celebrating uh, 50 years as a performer this year, I believe. Yes. Yes, I am. So I think you, you, you've earned a few of those titles. Thank you for having me in your home to, to have this chat. My pleasure. Mon, how do you like to um, to entertain yourself when you're not working? Do you, do you have many hobbies? Well, hobbies, no, not hobbies, so to speak. Um, I'm the artistic director for Prada's Prada Clutches, all my review show and her Lay Diva show, and I design and hand bead her costumes. So I'm kept fairly busy. So you're a bit of a seamstress. That's a that's a skill which would be essential, I imagine. Well, to... hand beading. I do all hand beading mainly. They have the costumes made, then they bring them to me, and I stitch them. That takes a bit of time, I would imagine. Yes, it takes about three months to beat a show. <laughs> Keeps you out of trouble. <laughs> Keeps me out of trouble. So so drag. You know you're. You're a phenomenal performer and have uh, many highlights in your career, which we'll talk about in this conversation. Uh, drag's an occupation that demands a lot of late nights. Are you tired? Well, it used to be late nights, but not anymore. But um, in the early days, we used to rehearse during the day and then work at night from 10 o'clock in the morning to 4 in the afternoon and come back at 8 o'clock at night and work till 3 the next morning. So the, the, the final show would be about two, I guess? Half past one. Half past one. Did you find it easy to unwind after a, a full day like that? Could you come home and just flop to bed? Or Most people are wired after Sometimes you, you do. It would depend on the night. It would depend on... When you've been doing a show for three years, the same show for three years, it's automatic pilot. You know, you just... The music starts and you just click into, you know, you just know it backwards. It's like doing a Broadway show, I suppose. Everything's laid out and you just step into it and zip it up and on you go, virtually. You don't have to overly think it. And we had the VIP lounge there. We could go up and drink there late at night, you know, or go out or even at three o'clock in the morning there was places open still. This is, of course, your uh, phenomenal season uh, of several years at Lay Girls, I guess you're talking 24 about. years. 24 years at Lay Girls. Mm. Get less for murder. <laughs> <laughs> Can you recall the, the first time that you stepped onto a stage? Doing drag? Yeah. Um, yes, I belonged years ago to an opera company, Rockdale Opera Company, and in that were two friends of mine, Philip Godley and Maxine Dubarry, now known as. And um, Philip Godley was known as La Contessa, used to sing live. 
ish. Thought it sounded like a woman, but it was uh, back then it was a, a big gimmick, a real big gimmick. And I think it was the Parramatta Bowling Club. He got us a gig there and said, "Would you, would Maxine and I, join him and do this gig?" So we did. We only had to do spots. I think I'm, I'm Shirley Bassey. I can't remember. And uh, yeah, that was the first time. And then we did gay parties and things, you know. And then Contessa was a friend of um, Keith Parsons, Keith Pearl, and they were looking for people to go and work at Gilligan's at Bondi, a real dump. And <laughs> but it was, it was a, a, a gay venue. No, was it? no? it was just a, it was a bar. Yeah, and they thought they'd put a drag show in there, so they got us to work there. I was there for t- nearly two years. I was a regular at Gilligan's. Yeah, it was four four nights a week. I got, gave up my day job. I was a window dresser. Oh, all right. So, so a great way to practice your craft and and refine it. I suppose so. But yeah. Who, who were you learning off? We didn't have choreographers or anything. So yeah. that wasn't until later. When lay girls left the opera house and didn't come back to King's Cross. And we went into King's Cross because Gilligan's was owned by Abe Saffron and Jimmy Anderson. And we moved into the lay girls' building. And they called it the Carousel Cabaret. And that's when it started to get a bit much more professional than their choreographers and costumers and, and then Eric Dare sold the name of Lay Girls to Keith Pearl and they changed the name of course from Carousel to Lay Girls and with that came the curse Carlotta? No. <laughs> Actually, she she brought it back to what it used to be, you know. Um, brought all the feathers and things back, you know. She said, I'm not coming back unless I've got a complete new show and da da da. So they forked out a bit of money. But as I said, each show ran for three years. So they certainly got their money back. So prior to being roped in by Philip Godley, mm. you'd been a bit of a performer on, on the operatic stage, hadn't you? I'd been with Rock Opera Company for seven years. What sort of shows did you do? Grand Opera and Gordon Sullivan. Is that still a, a passion of yours, classical music? Yeah. The opera? Yeah. 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 Love it. You, so relaxing. It is. You sent me a glorious clip yesterday. Yes, of the pearl fishers, the duet. Yeah, magnificent. Yes. Beautiful boys and doing a number one, and but beautifully sung too, those two boys. What's your favourite opera? I do like the Bohem and I love Traviata. Depends who's doing it. That's right, it can change. It uh, can, yes. You can go, oh, Div, I love Butterfly, but not her doing it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it depends, depends on the production. Mm. So uh, you've starred in almost every gay hotel and club that's that's been around on the Golden Mile. The Unicorn, Patches, Capriccio's, Tropicana, Flo's Place, the Paddington Green Hotel, the Aubrey Annie's Bar. 
Did you have a favourite venue that you, you liked to perform at? I think the Taxi Club. One I didn't mention then. No? <laughs> One I didn't mention. Oh, I'm sorry. But of co- no, no, but of course the Taxi Club. Yeah. Yes. And when we first started to do Oxford Street, we started off at the Unicorn Hotel. I knew Tim Berry, and I used to go there Monday nights. They used to have a spaghetti bolognese and a cask of flag and a red wine or something for 10 bucks or something. Cheap meal Monday nights. And everybody used to go because it was our night off and it was a cheap meal and, you know, have a few drinks. And Tim asked me if I'd put a show on there. And I said, oh, hmm, maybe. And um, so then I spoke to Maxine and she was working with us at the time. And then I said to Carlotta, would you come... Oh no, she said, I'm not going to work Oxford Street. She said, I'm mums and dads. She said, I'm GP. I said, no, they'll love it, Carol. And back then, the shows were on Sunday nights and on early at six o'clock was the pub closed at ten back then. And uh, the queens had come and they'd bring their mothers. Instead of taking them to lay girls to see Carlotta, they brought them to the unicorn hotel. <laughs> so, do you see, you're still working for your mums and dads, darling. Anyway, so we were there for a while and then we went from there. We used to do there at six o'clock and then when the later licence came in, we used to go across to the Flinders Hotel and do a show there, two shows there, and then across to the taxi club do two shows there, six shows a day we were doing. Was, was your mum and dad supportive of your career? Um, my father died three weeks before I was born. Oh, OK. So I never knew him. Yeah. And funny enough, my mother never spoke much of him. As kids, um, we knew he was in the army and all of that. It's not till later that my sister did the family history that we found out you know, a bit more about him. But mum didn't mention him much because... I don't think she really had time to mourn because she had a new baby. You know, I was three weeks old. I wasn't even born. Mm-hmm. You know, I was born three weeks after he died, so she was busy getting me air, I suppose, and food. You were the main focus? I suppose so. And um, But Mum was... Uh, Mum was f- f- fine with it. You know, she... Uh, I think she realised once I started up at, the, at King's Cross and the name changed to Lay Girls and Carousel. Um, she came, used to come and see the shows and uh, she was a double amputee. We used to have to, the doorman would carry her up in the chair and things. And uh, she'd come and see it and uh, my sisters, I've got two sisters, um, They've supported me all the way through, you know. I just had lunch two days ago with my sister um, up at the cross, so... Yeah, we get on well. Yeah, very supportive. Off mic, before we started, you were telling me a story about uh, working on the on the night that your, your mum took ill and, and sadly passed away. Yeah. Do you want to share that with us again? I think it was a Saturday night or Friday night. 
we were busy at work at Fly Girls and I think the first show had just started or was about to start and apparently somebody, my sister I think phoned through to the club and said that mum was in intensive care so to speak, she had a heart attack at my auntie's playing cards and um, there's always a joker in the pack and um, she was taken to Liverpool Hospital and my sister rang early, about 8 o'clock I think, and they didn't tell me until the first show was over because it was a full house and I suppose the show must go on but um, so I left there at uh, at the interval and got there and I saw my mother but she wasn't conscious but she knew I was there I think who knows and um, but the funny thing about the story is that they docked me half a night's pay and I had to borrow $50 to get to the hospital and they docked me the $50 as well <laughs> so Tough times also because, you know, at the beginnings of your career, there's no drag queen um, salary award, is there? There's no conditions that you're working no. under. You're just and we couldn't even join Actors' Equity. They wouldn't, they had no, no category for us. Would you believe that? Yes, same as Same as the strippers. They couldn't join Actors' Equity because there was no category for them back then. Now you'd be classified as variety or something, I suppose. But back then they didn't have all that. It was either you were a singer, a comedian, or a dancer, or a... There was no drag queen category. Or Well, as we know, it's a very different scene now. Do you think it's it's harder to, to have a career in, in drag? Because there's less of venues, I would imagine, to perform at. In the gay world, it's hard um, because there's, as you said, not many venues left that have drag shows and what they do have, they're very small. There might be two or three, maybe four at the most in a show. Um, they've got a small little corner bar or stage to work on. Um, the pub doesn't say he's a... $10,000 budget towards your next show they don't give you any budget, no nothing you've got to supply everything and so yeah, it's it's. Uh, mind you, we had to do that too, that's why I, I asked Carlotta to join us at the Unicorn because we used to take all the costumes from the lay girls <laughs> all the big feather costumes um, but you couldn't uh, and there's nowhere else for the for people to go unless they have their own show people like Prada and that the tour clubs and and tour theatres you know in the country and do all that um, otherwise there's nowhere for you to work for you to even gain experience you know yeah so your career started as a window dresser did you have aspirations to be a performer when you were a kid I was going to be an opera singer right of course. So you had the vocal chops, obviously. Yeah. Um, did you have singing lessons as a kid? I did. Um, 
goodness gracious me, going back into cobwebs now. Um, Eric Thew, I think, was my first singing teacher. And he was just down from the town hall. Um, and when I was young, really young, you know, 11, 12, uh, I had a very high soprano voice. Um, in fact, I sang a duet with Rosalind Keane at the Sydney Town Hall years and years and years and years ago. And I was in the Police Boys Choir then. And I was the lead soloist, and I had one of Stedford's and things singing. And uh, then as my voice started to break, they thought, we'll put you in the basso thing, so you will not strain your voice by singing tenor. You know, let the voice settle under it. Well, it went to the bass, and that's where it stayed. Basso profundo. Here we come. <laughs> so, um, yes, I... Yes. So where was that passion for opera ignited? Was Did mum have classical music? No, no one, no one. No one in the famous slightest theatrical at all. No, no one, no one. Just me. I don't know, I think it just... Uh, I think watching Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy and years, you know, as a kid, you know. Um, and it fascinated me, the voice fascinated me, how they could sing like that and trill and do all that sort of thing, I think. How can a voice do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I certainly found out. I think, um, you know, opera and, and uh, I'm a great musical theatre fan, I think, and as a kid I grew up in a a little country town and I think that the musical theatre the cast recordings they had were a bit of an escape from mm. probably not being entirely happy in not having the things that or really having met my tribe at that stage I think the first musical record I brought my mother brought me a, um, a portable record player looked like beauty case you know <laughs> um, <laughs> You'd open them up and, you know, and you'd move the arm out so you could move the arm in and um, a switch at the side that said 33 or... 45. 45. Mm. And uh, I think the first record I ever brought was uh, My Fair Lady was the... Oh, yeah. I think everyone had My Fair Lady in the yes. house, didn't they? That was the, the big hit. Rex Harrison, I think, and Julie Andrews, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There was lots before that, but that was sort of my first... And I played it and played it and played it. And, but mum and then, and I used to put it on shows at home and, you know, in the kitchen. And, Did the sisters join in? No, not really, no, they weren't into it. But if we had fancy dress at school or anything, I'd always dress as a, a woman. I always had one of mum's skirts with one of my sister's hula hoops in the, taped into the bottom of the thing, so it was like a great big... So I looked like... Thought I looked like Jeanette MacDonald. <laughs> I look more like Ronald McDonald, but <laughs> <laughs>
So with um, 50 years as, as a dra- drag artist, mm-hmm. you would have garnered a, a fair bit of knowledge. What, in your opinion, makes for a, a great drag artist? Well, we were told years ago, like, 60% was your costume, how you looked. 20% was your beauty or your glamour, you know, how beautiful you were, and 20% was talent. Well, these days I think you've got to have a bit more talent than... I mean, there's some pretty crook-looking drag queens out there, but they've got talent. Mm-hmm. Um, or a gimmick. Got to have a gimmick. So they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and with lay, see, at lay girls and everything, we had to be able to do everything. You had to be able to do comedy. You had to be able to do talk on a mic. We used to do live sketches. Had to be able to talk on a mic. You had to be able to dance. You had to be able to you know, move. You had to... Um, and also behave yourself. You know, you couldn't get into trouble with the law or anything, but you'd be out in a minute. Because we're, we're talking of a time also where homosexuality was illegal. Yes. The, the criminal laws are pretty tough. Yeah, of course. You could be arrested for wearing... Women's attire. In public. Yeah, in public, yeah. yeah. We were sort of exempt from all that, I think. Because you were celebrities at Lagos? Well, maybe the owners were paying a few pennies <laughs> here and there, you know. <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> Some insurance. I've seen a, a few detectives and things come through there during the day while we've been rehearsing, picking up an envelope or two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fun, though. Much better, much better back then as far as the running of everything went than it is today. Mm. All right, they, everyone was had their hand out and everyone was getting paid, but everyone was doing their job and everybody was allowed to do certain amounts to compensate that and all of that. Who knows? It certainly didn't interfere with my career, but also I think Lagos was a bit of a laundromat. Now they could cipher money through there at 100 miles an hour because it was a like it was the legit business. Yeah, where strip clubs and all of those sort of places were very under the counter. Where lay girls were, you know, dockets and receipts and all of that tax we used to have to pay. We pay tax. <laughs> I only got there once. Um, I was living in Victoria and we came up to see, a group of us came up to see cats. Oh, yeah. And we thought, we'll get lay girls. And that was the very first time that I encountered you as a performer. Oh, yeah. Hysterical. I think, was that a role that you played a lot at lay girls, the, 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 the comic? I, um, I was just a showgirl to start off. And then when Carol came, when Carlotta came you might get more production was put into it so you'd have a your spot number was choreographed and and you might have two girls behind backup girls or whatever you might get a sabrette and at the time we had uh, 
Judy Allen and Lindell. We had a touring show too, which also toured, which I toured with toured Australia about five, six times. Country towns and oh, dreadful. Some of the places were shocking. But anyway, all fun. All all learning material, you know. That's what kids don't get to uh, experience any of that, you know. Mm. We'd have to go and build dressing rooms and set the lights up and set the sound up and then go to the back to the motel, get ready and come and do a show, and then pack it all back up again. Move on. And leave the next day. Grab the money and run. And, um, <laughs> you know, another four-hour drive or six-hour drive to the next humpy that you go to. Dreadful. But anyway, it was... Um, we were young, you know, we were young kids. Sorry, why I digressed then. What was the question? Again, I forgot. <laughs> I've forgotten too. There you are. But it's a good story. Lay Girls, back to Lay Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... Oh, were well, yeah, you? The comic roles. Oh, yes. Um, we had Lindell and we also had uh, Judy Allen and Judy Allen got sick and... Um, she had to retire and she went to live back in Newcastle and Lindell took over for a while and then they asked me to do it Lindell was doing something else she was involved in Oxford Street and all of that I think with Lorraine Campbell Craig and Stray Girls and all that nonsense up there so they, Carl Offer said to me, do you want to do the comedy, Monique, until we find someone? And I thought, well, why not? You do it, you have your own spot. And as Carlotta said, she said, the audience always remember the compere and the comedian. That's, she said, they don't remember anything else. The rest is just fairy dust, you know. And so, and I used to enjoy it. I used to, you know, I used to get into characters, you know, for the big fat lady strip and walk like a big fat woman and go down on the floor and try and do floor work and all of that. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> and then couldn't get back up and all of that sort of, you know, campering. And, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. And we used to do comedy sketches, live comedy sketches then too. We used to do a centre on Dynasty and with old sketches from the old Tivoli days. Maggie Martin, who used to be our choreographer, she worked at the Tivoli years ago. She was a a dancer at the Tivoli circuit. And um, she used to have all these corny sketches, but we'd put them to modern day and that would be funny. So, Were you Alexis or Crystal? Um... I was Alexis, Carol was Crystal. Right. <laughs> you uh, became known for a legendary performance of The Twelve Days of Christmas. Yes. How did that start? And describe for me what the act is. Well, it's a song. Uh, it's The Twelve Days of Christmas, but it's uh, a drunk woman sings it. And she gets drunk and drunk as she sings it, and it's all, you know... All the words are all jumbled up and you know, six margaritas and, you know, all of that it goes. Well, I used to, well, most people, 
first time I saw it done was, um, I think, Simone Troy. Quite a few have done it before, but they used to do it as a nun. Right. And the nun would get drunk. I don't know why, but but I didn't. I just did it as... I just start in the audience, sit at a table halfway through the number before, go and just find a seat somewhere and sit at the table and get up from there. And um, <clears throat> and I used to pick up everyone's drinks off the tables and pour them into a bit into the schooner glass with a bit of beer in the bottom of it. And I used to put milk in and red wine and, you know... <laughs> You see all the milk curdle and everything. <laughs> and then I used to top it off with an ashtray and drink it. Skull it down. What was that like? I suppose you became used to it. Well, it's like an old prostitute, darling. You just block your nose and swallow. And, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, you know, it's not the work, it's the stairs. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I, I still do it. I still do it at Prada's Christmas show. Um, I hope you haven't swallowed any um, cigarette butts. Well, you can... Yes, you do. Whatever's in the ashtray, I guess. Whatever's in the ashtray. These days I've got to take my own ashtray with me because they don't... Nobody smokes. You can't smoke anywhere, so... <laughs> you know, I'd have to do it out in the street um, to get the ashtray. But... Um, yeah, I just take my own props with me. Who are your favourite vocalists to... Um, do, you, do you do mime or lip sync? What, what's the term you say? Mime. Mime. Yeah, lip sync. Same thing. Shirley Bassey, of course, because she's so dramatic. Yes. Um, I think the first number I, I did was You Came way, A Long Way From St Louis. You came a long way from St Louis You climbed the ladder of success I've seen the Cadillacs and Jags that have parked out in front of your fancy A-dress You came a long way from St. Louis You broke a lot of hearts I between I've seen a line of blooming broads who are all doing just fine till you came on the scene You came here from the Midwest You're naturally impressed This population here about Oh well baby I've got news for you I'm from Missouri too So naturally I got my doubt You got them dropping by the way. I did Aretha Franklin I used to do heavier voices because I, I wasn't tiny and petite I was a statuesque woman mm. um, and a squeaky voice coming out of a person my size to me is stupid you know like getting up doing Kylie Minogue or something I'd never even dream of doing it mm. and uh, of course Barbara Streisand when I first started off I started doing Jackie Trent Jackie Trent but if you stay, I'll make you a day Like no day has been, or will be again We'll sail to the sun, we'll ride on the rain We'll talk to the trees and worship the wind Then if you go 
was popular at the time. But we used to have rules at Bay Girls. If Carlotta was doing Shirley Bassey, nobody else was allowed to do Shirley Bassey. If she was doing Lena Horne, nobody else could do Lena Horne. Or it was all of that. Just... <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't have had the technology that's available now. So how did you collect your music? But that was all on cassette, was it? Or did you have to go and buy the music? We'd have to go and buy the record. Right. Oh, records, of course. That yes. This is before cassettes. Yes, buy the record and then have that put onto a tape. And that used to be reel-to-reel. Maxine has the original reel-to-reel Lay Girls show tapes. She's still got them. Wow. They should be transferred to disc or something so that they... Well, she should have them done, but whether she will or not, I don't know. She better hurry. <laughs> so you grew up in Sydney? Yeah, yeah, Hurstle. Were you uh, fascinated by the movies and movie stars? No, not really. Um, I worked as a, uh, a lolly person, <laughs> a lolly boy, um... At a cinema? At a cinema, yeah. uh, when I was about 13, I suppose. And uh, I used to do the matinees, the Saturday matinees, and they were showing films like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and all of those sorts of film. Camp? Yeah. Yeah. But I used to watch TV, I think we were... Mum was one of the first people in our street to have a television. We used to go down to our aunties who lived three blocks away down on Princess Highway virtually. And we used to go down there on a Sunday and watch um, TV down there. And they used to have cellophane across the top and the middle and the bottom of the colour cellophane. Blue, (laughs) yellow and green at the bottom. Fabulous. To make the black and white colour To make the black and white colour. Cellophane paper, mind you. <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you remember the first drag show that you saw? That I saw? Yeah. That you went to as an audience member? Yes. Uh, it was Lay Girls, I think. Um, we had a... With the opera company, uh, we had a social committee thing out that we'd go to shows and things in yeah. the theatre and we used to go to the music loft or the music hall there at um, Mossman um, theatre restaurant there and after that we used to gather and sing around the piano and then about half a dozen of us said oh come on we'll go up to King's Cross now you know we all all had a Chardonnay or two and um into a cab and went up there and saw the late show at Lay Girls and it was a Christmas show if I remember and I was fascinated by it I just couldn't believe that it was you know what it was but it didn't when I first got into drag it was like an acting job and it wasn't until I moved to King's Cross and started all that that I started to live as a woman take hormones and all of that and have hormones injections and um, breast implants 
Was that something that you'd always live with is for, from a kid right through, or did it? No, it, it no, no, not at all. No, it just it became a way of life. This, I thought, well, I was in show business, so I was quite happy, you know. Um, my sister said to me, you know, why wouldn't why haven't you ever had a sex change? I said, who wants to be one of you? I said, mm. I just want to be me. I said, I don't want to be. A woman, per se, I just want to be me, mm. Mm. and I enjoy it. So I imagine your your aspirations of being an opera singer then take a turn. Oh, of course, they did. Yeah, 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 very early in the piece, that that all went to the wayside. That just because I just concentrated on drag, which is was helping you fulfil you as as you. Yeah, defining who you were. Yeah, yeah. But no, I did, I've never wanted to be a woman as, as such. I've just... I've enjoyed being a drag queen. Mm-hmm. Who were the drag performers on the scene when you were starting? Oh, we had Orca Pritchard, um, Corinne, um, Robin, Karen, Rose, Jackson, um, all of that cast... Bay Girls, we had uh, Carlotta brought Fader back in for a while. Um, we had a few of, of the older Bay Girls. Um, and Electra was making for the, the show. She was, had Electra show gowns. She was making the costumes for it. Did you have a drag mother? You know, we hear of drag mothers who take younger drag queens under their no. wing. and, and, no. and Well, who, no. were you, who were your mentors? Who, who taught you how to be a, a great artist? You just looked low. Looked and learned, you know. You just, oh, that's how you pin on a hairpiece, or that's how you do that, or, and a lot of things were supplied with uh, lay girls, you know, costumes and things. So you didn't have to overly worry about it. You had to supply your own spot costume, which was uh, sometimes fun. Um, who's got the biggest and who's got the best? Um, <laughs> I've got my edge and diamante. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, there wasn't any mother hens, I don't suppose. I suppose Carlotta would have been when she came back and, because she virtually told you what she wanted and we just came up with the goods. Mm-hmm. Like, like everything, isn't it? Yep. So... And the trouble with drag today, it's not... It was a lifestyle back when we were young, where today it's not. They can be a boy during the day and they can be a girl at night, a drag queen at night or a drag act at night. You know, there's no... Where with us, it was virtually impossible for you to hold a job. As lay girls, the most beautiful boys in the world, was advertised as. Um, And not... Unless you were people like um, Stan Munro and and, um, Johnny Moselle and Peter Moselle, Candy Johnson, they were compares. But they they didn't have to play showgirls or anything. They were just in in a beautiful evening frock out in a wig and makeup, yak, 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 yak on on a microphone, Mm. you know, and singing a song occasionally. Where we had to do all the tits and feathers and, you know, topless and all that pasties and g-strings 
drag seems to be now very much in the public consciousness with shows like RuPaul's yeah. Drag Race. Are you a fan of... No. No? No. Why not? Of course, it's... To me, they don't look like women. They look... They're caricatures of women. They're not... Clowns, maybe. Well, not clown-like, I suppose. It's all over, overly accentuated. It's too much. It's just too much. You know, they don't, there's nothing soft about them. Or some of them. Don't get me wrong. There's some are very good, but the majority of them are just. It's all about how much more makeup can we put on and how more outrageous can we be. Where we were not trying to blend, but we were trying to be. Hollywood showgirls, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Where today they don't have to be that; they can be whatever they want to be. Glamour, and they're a drag queen. Don't even have to be glamorous; they can just plonk on a wig and say, "I'm doing drag." There's people on, you know, Instagram and all of those things, and they're just boys dressed up, talking a lot of shit. <laughs> and I think, well, no. And it won't come back to what it was, but we can try to keep the uh, home fires burning. It must be nice to see performers like Courtney Act in the mainstream as a presenter oh, on television yeah. and on stage. Fantastic, I think that's... But she's, uh, she's taken it seriously where a lot of them don't. It's just a, a gig for them or, you know, just get up on stage and look at me, look at me, where she's not, she's... She's an entertainer. She's a professional entertainer. A bit like Trevor Ashley, I suppose, to a certain extent. I mean, when he does the drag act, it's good. When he does a male act, it's good. Yeah. So he's an actor. He's not... Certainly not a lifestyle. And that's exactly what... The school that you come from. Indeed. Working at Lay Girls with all those costumes... Did you have a crew or a, a wardrobe team that would maintain the costumes, or was that solely your responsibility? Oh, if a zipper broke, we'd take it to the, whoever made the costume, well, yes, and have a new zipper put in the next day and have it back that night. But you'd probably have to take it and mm. get it done, mm. or you'd stitch it in by hand, or put a safety pin in it, or. Somebody was going up the road to, you know, oh, I'll take that costume on Friday, you know, I'm seeing so-and-so. Yeah, but we had, um, we had dresses most of the time. Um, you know, they do the curtains and dresses. Um, oh, we just helped one another, you know. It was, it was only a very small dressing room, mm. tiny not very wide and all the costumes hung behind you on a rack behind you and there was a mirror in the front and there was just a chair and you were excuse me excuse me excuse me between because the cast could be how many people sometimes eight sometimes oh. ten and the stage wasn't that huge either was it? no 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 not, not very big at all and with the wigs on and the shoes you went far from the ceiling on the stage yeah oh no we used to have Big feather headdresses and things. Right, right. But they'd be designed that you'd have a spray at the front and it would all be at the back, you know. 
The review becoming world famous, a, a few international celebrities would, would often drop in. Who do you remember as, as being in the audience on some nights? Um, Robert Hopman came with Nureyev. Um, Danny LaRue was always popping in and popping backstage. Um, and then we'd all, three or four, four of us and Danny and Carlotta would go around to the Bourbon because Danny was working at the Regent Theatre and doing his show and was finished at 10.30 and he'd come up and catch our 11.30 show or the late show and uh, poor old Silvana she used to come back and sit backstage um, um, Delilah used to come and sit backstage she'd come back with a comedy cigarette and uh, <laughs> um, we'd sit back there and get stoned and do the late show and um, she'd sit there um, Bette Midler came um, Shirley Bassey came we had a lot of people come through but and they wouldn't come and tell us that anybody was in they'd just say oh so and so was in sort of you know or some would leave before the, the end of it you know Bette Midler had her security come up during the day. Check it out? To check it out. And she came in the, the in the door and then you just walked upstairs and you are up to the top level. Well, she, was, she went up to that top level to watch the show. But she was only there for 20 minutes. And then she left again. Right. Not that she didn't like it, but she probably had somewhere else to go. Who knows? <laughs> so what was the career post Lay Girls? You, you started groups like... The Golden Girls? Yes. That was on Oxford Street. We named our, called ourselves the Golden Girls. Then we became known as the Olden Girls. <laughs> after um, a while. After a while. <laughs> uh, we had a good run. We, had, we were at the tax club for five or six years. And we used to put Christmas pantos on there and all camp pantos, Alice in Wonderland with... Simone, Troyers, Alice, and I used to say the oldest Alice in captivity. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we did Latin there, and we did all sorts of um, nonsense, the, the musical, all dressed as nuns, and turned into prostitutes at the end of it. You know, it was sort of very twisted fairy tales, I can assure you. Getting into a different habit. Yes, so to speak. <laughs> mm. It was good. It was fun. And then I used to work at the Rex Hotel. I used to do one woman shows down there, just myself. Did a one woman show at the Flinders Hotel. Had um, indoor pyrotechnics. And back then it was, oh dear. I didn't earn any money. The money went for crackers and everything else. Um, well, I imagine, yeah, it's it's an expensive business being a, a drag performer. Of course with, it is, yeah. With your costuming and your, your set and we music. And makeup. And, yep. Are you good with the sewing machine? No. I'm a good hand sewer, but not... Um, I've never... I used to work for, with Kenny Williams, um, making the costumes, and, um, and Stephen Fitzgerald. Um, 
I was all right on the overlocker, but the sewing machine wasn't my forte at all. I didn't like it. You've done um, a, a good deal of, of charity work also, working with organisations like uh, the Luncheon Club. Uh, yes. Raising, yeah. raising money for HIV, AIDS Yes, charity. when all that came out. and That yes. must have been a horrific time on the scene. It was, and I really had to... Uh, I think I did it for three years, three, maybe longer, could be five. Um, and every week, at least once or twice a week, Carol Ann King would have a pub or something that would put on a, a night um, to raise money for uh, either Ward 17 or something. And, uh, and the luncheon club. Um, so I was doing benefits, you know, two and three nights a week. Nothing for nothing. And... Um, then she had the luncheon club every Monday during the, the day at the Oxford Hotel upstairs. But they turned down tonight and, you know, used to have drag shows there and I used to host that. And, and um, I rang Caroline one and I said, one week, and I said, Caroline, I said, I can't do any more of the thing. And she said, well, what? I said, I'm just benefited out. I just... And surely they don't want to come and see me again comparing another benefit anyway so I sort of stepped back and I did I did bits and pieces but I didn't I didn't because it was quite full on when it first came out you know everyone was yeah very very sad time that era that we all seemed to well a lot of people managed to get through it and live, have lived with it. It's like this COVID business now, I suppose. We just have to live with it. You've just got to go... Adapt. This is what it is. Mm. Get on with it. Suck it up, buttercup, move on. <laughs> In 2002, you were inducted into the Diva Hall of Fame. Must be nice to be recognised by your, your peers. Yes, um... That was very funny. That happened at the Sydney Town Hall. It was the diva night there. And back then they didn't tell anyone who the diva was. Surprise Hall on of the fame, night. Or who the Hall of Fame was. It was a surprise on the night. And I was on stage with Colleen Windsor and we were doing the Hall of Fame, her and I. And she... We didn't... You wouldn't know until you actually opened the envelope, supposedly. Colleen knew, but I didn't know. Anyway, so then I... We're up there going, yang, 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 and, you know, talking a lot of crap, I suppose. And uh, then all of a sudden, Colleen started all this dialogue, and I thought, that sounds like me. <laughs> Gilligan's or something of Bondi and da da, and then going to Lego. And next minute, you could have knocked me over. I didn't suspect it or, or anything, you know, it was a complete shock. And uh, yeah, she tricked me that coin. <laughs> <laughs> 
she didn't tell me who it was. Um, oh, it'll be all right, honey. She said, come on, just be yeah, calling. <laughs> it was fun. Yes, the old Hall of Fame. I think I said, I suppose I can do my makeup now that I'm in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Sending them up, but over the heads, of course. <laughs> so, Mon, is there no business like show business? There certainly is no business like show business. I think it's, um, and if you're involved in it and you love it, um, it can be the best business to be in. And I don't mean fame and, and glory and money, but if you really love it and um, like I still get a buzz out of doing what I do, you know, with prior to show and stuff, I, I, I get a buzz out of it. And I sit back and I think, wow, you know, you created all that. You made that look like that. And nobody else can, can do that, you know. Um, people can do it. But uh, I think I've been around long enough to know what the general public want, and um, and we throw ideas around. You know, she comes back with this, and I say, oh, do, 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 and you know, yep, yep, oh yeah, yeah, no. Mm. Till we come to a compromise, or we don't argue about anything. I sort of have the last say, I suppose. <laughs> That's always nice. Well, Mon, congratulations on your golden anniversary as a performer. Oh. And, and thank you for the immense joy that you've given audiences over that time. Oh, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've enjoyed doing it, I can assure you. I've, um, I don't have any regrets at all. I'd, um, I'll do it all again in a heartbeat, but I'll do it a little bit different next time, I think. I'd be, I would be more prepared. I was. I mean, I was just someone from the suburbs that went to King's Cross and worked there for you know, 25 years. Um, but I wouldn't have had the experience of travelling Australia or and all of that if I... I don't know what I would have done. Who knows? Thanks, Mom. My pleasure. In 2002, Monique was inducted into the Diva Hall of Fame, an acknowledgement of her generosity, skill and fabulousness as a performer and Sydney icon. Thank you for the pleasure of your company, Monique, and happy Mardi Gras. Join us in the next episode where my guest is DJ Dan Murphy. Dan has been providing the magic of the dance floor for two decades. He has produced a range of entertainments and delighted with each. I can't wait. Great to have your company once again. It's going to be another phenomenal year of stages. I look forward to joining you each week. So until next time, I'm Peter Eyers. See you then. Simon, you must have a story about Abe Saffron. Yes. He was all of a, a lot of people think he was a, a tough old gangster, Mr. Sin and Mr. Everything Else. Well, 
maybe he was but he wasn't to us he was always kind to us always used to come in and say hello and come backstage and lovely showgirls and all of that then he went to jail for tax evasion and um, next minute we the next time we heard from Abe Saffron was that he wanted lay girls to come and do a show at Long Bay Jail they've got an auditorium with a stage and everything there do they? yeah so we had to go there and we went there and did the show two shows and um, Joe Martin Maggie Martin's former husband was the comedian and he was the warm up show and uh never heard anybody swear like it and Carlotta said oh how am I going to follow that (laughs) (laughs) we had no problem they just they loved the show and um, at the end of it he put on a great big Chinese banquet for us on the stage while we were packing up and getting changed next moment we came out Mr Saffron would like you to come this way and we went into this section of the stage and there was this Chinese banquet all laid out and a few prisoners, not many, I think. That would be his go for prisoners, I suppose. His, his staff, so to speak. He was treated very well. He got anything and everything he wanted. You know, I think he ran his business and everything still while he was in jail. I mean, it was just a different home at the time for for him locked up but he did say to me Monique he said can you strange request could I leave my hairspray for him I said hairspray yeah sure you know (laughs) gossamer gossamer (laughs) hairspray I think it was back then Um, yes Long Bay Jail very good Um, um, our male dancer couldn't go because he had a police record they checked us all out and everything all had to be checked out. Costumes had to go in that afternoon. They were all searched. Security. Security, 